Lord, Father, we thank you again for this time to gather here in your house, in your place, and that we ask that you would bring your words and your truth, that we would be reminded of how good and gracious you are and all the things you have blessed and done for us and given us, that in the same manner, too, that we are now enemies of the world and we have a real and alive enemy that's out there that desires to steal, kill, and destroy, ruin our witness and our testimony. But teach us, Lord, that in all that you have given us, we are more than sufficient to live in victory, to live joyful, to live fruitfully, and to live bearing much fruit for you. Help us this day, Lord, to grasp and to understand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And uh, so spiritual warfare. So when I say spiritual warfare, oh, by the way, I like to be a little bit more interactive and ask questions, so don't be surprised uh, if I ask some questions. Feel free to, uh, if you have something to say, raise your hand or something, be glad to share I'll let you share and uh, get some interaction, because I think we all learn that way as well, too. So when I say spiritual warfare, what comes to mind when you think of spiritual warfare? So like me, I think of, you know, casting out demons and all that kind of stuff. What about you guys? Putting on the armor. That's right. That's a very big part of it in which we're going to get into it. Maybe not this week, but uh, we will for sure in the next two weeks. What else? Anything else? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. She said, I don't know if you heard her, but she said Paul's description of spiritual warfare. Who can deliver me from this? And he says, a daily battle against the world system. And so that, that is all part of the spiritual warfare and that we are engaged in and that we are no longer a part of, so to speak, that, as we see the scripture says, we were lifted up out of the darkness and into the light. And that is, and that is um, a battle that we will be facing each and every day, as he said, as... as uh, and that we have the armor of God in which to stand against the devil. So the reason I picked spiritual warfare was that because, uh, at least in my experience, I don't know, I can't speak for you guys, but um, in my experience, there's not a whole lot of discussion about spiritual warfare, especially in the, the world and country that we live in. It's just not something that is discussed or brought about very often or even uh, the armor of God or spiritual warfare is not talked or discussed much. And so I've not very seldom heard a conversation or really even participate in too many conversations regarding spiritual warfare. And so uh, I'd like to give you maybe some couple of silly examples, but I'm hoping that will illustrate a point there. I've never had a conversation where I came to church and I'll pick on you, Russ, because you're the elder, so... <laughs> Or I came up to Russ and said, good morning, Russ, how are you doing? I see that you 
you have your helmet of salvation on this morning, but I noticed last week you didn't have it on, right? How many times have we had that conversation? Or you've reminded your spouse about that they forgot something, right? Don't forget your keys. Don't forget your wallet or your children. Make sure you have your homework, right? Don't forget your homework, right? But how many times have we asked them or reminded them, hey, don't forget your breastplate of righteousness, or, hey, you left your sword of the Spirit in the, on the couch there. Don't forget to put it on before you go outside. Right? Maybe silly examples, but you know, when was the last time you did have a conversation like that with someone? Or when was the last time you even thought about it yourself, about putting on some of these pieces that the Lord has given us? And how many pieces of armor do we have? Do we even know that? Um, or let me give you another example. Imagine a soldier gets enlisted in the military. He's given a rifle and bayonet, grenades and ammunition. He goes, he has, he's briefly trained, he does his training. And then they go to their duty station with all their gear and their equipment. And then they get there and then they just throw them all in the locker and forget about them. they just locked up. Because they think they will never go to battle, right? It's relatively peaceful, and I'll never go. There'll never be a war. Therefore, they never practice assembling or disassembling their rifle. They never zero it or take care of it. They never shoot it. They never practice loading or unloading the rifle. They never practice fixing jams in their rifle. They never even clean or lubricate their rifle. They never practice with their bayonet. They don't even know how to put it on or how to keep it sharp. They're not sure how to use a grenade or even how to accurately throw the grenade. And then one day war breaks out and they are called to battle and they are called to go to the front lines. What kind of soldier do you think that they would be? Well, I was going to put it a little bit nicer than that, but <laughs> um, at best, right, they would probably be very useless, not much help, and probably problems on the battlefield. They would cause more, more, more harm than they would good, or at worst, they would be a casualty, right? And so I say this because I'm afraid that many Christians are like that, <coughs> excuse me, are like that soldier that throws their weapon in the locker room, in their locker and think that they're never going to go to battle. And then, when the battle comes, then they're ill-equipped, ill-prepared, and ill-trained, and can very quickly become a casualty in that spiritual warfare. Because we will be constantly in battle, therefore we need to be aware and be trained to use those weapons of warfare that God has given us. Because we do have a very real enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy we need to be aware and alert because we are at war. Whether we like it or not, the facts say, the Bible says, that we are at war. Genesis 4-7 says, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And then 1 Peter 5-8, which is especially what we're going to be looking for here these next couple of weeks, Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
As we'll see, God has graciously equipped us that we may stand firm and have victory against the devil. That you must not ignore the battle, but rather stand strongly and be bold because we fight from victory. Right? We're not like the soldiers who go to battle who don't know whether they're going to win or whether they're going to lose. We already know that Christ has won the battle and that in and through him we are victorious. That, we, that in the end, we are going to win. And that should make a big difference in how we approach and the way that we live and how the way that we do battle. First John 4.4 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So then, where do we receive our instructions and guidance about spiritual warfare? Anybody? Scripture. scripture, the Bible, right? I think you have a little fill in the blank there. I'll try to keep you, be able to fill them in there. And so, as I said, we're going to be looking at spiritual warfare. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. I think we all know which section there, chapter, verses 10 through 20. Ephesians 6. Verses 10 through 20. Can I have a volunteer to read that for us? Don't all jump at once then. We should be excited to read the scripture. Thank you, sweetheart. <laughs> um, that's my wife, by the way. So. Um, so here's kind of the key passage that we're going to be looking at over these next three weeks in discussing spiritual warfare, and specifically the armor of God. So I'm going to take the liberty here this first week here just kind of to define so we have a good understanding of what exactly is spiritual warfare, a little background we look at that, some of the warfare that we see in the Bible, as well as Satan and some of his tactics and who he is and why he is our enemy. And then the 
next week we'll look at the first three pieces of armor and then the third week we'll go into the, the last three pieces of armor. So that's kind of the plan of attack, I guess we could say, for the next couple weeks. And in reading and trying to study, uh, you know, I don't know about you guys, I think as I said, that one of the reasons why I wanted to study is also just for myself too, so that it would be clear in my mind as well too, because it is not uh, something that is really heavily discussed or much conversation or that people even pay attention to unless, of course, that they get in trouble. Not very, then all of a sudden we're very interested in these type of things here. And then I found that there was two kind of views or opinions regarding spiritual warfare, and they both tend to be on opposite ends of the spectrum or the two extremes there, that there doesn't seem to be generally, and I don't want to say generally too, these are just kind of generally generalizations for um, the two different views there. Though there are people, obviously, that can grasp and even now understand and what, know what spiritual warfare is all about. But generally speaking, most people fall into one or two categories there. The first one there, the first blank, should be naturalism. So this is just a denial that the devil and his demons are our enemy. That people who believe this take a view that everything has a natural cause and nothing exists beyond what you can see with your eyes. So this type of view would be, I think again, just as a generalization, would be what the average Christian in the Western world would think of spiritual warfare, more of the naturalistic type that we don't kind of see it, so we don't really think about it, so we think of all these natural causes that make all these things happen, forgetting about that there is a spiritual dimension behind there. For example, you know, we just read of all the tragedies in the school with all the shootings, and what does everybody say the problem is? Guns, right? Gun control. It's because of all those things, you know, we have violence in the schools. But as Christians, we know it's a lot more than just guns and gun control, that there is a spiritual dimension behind there, even most likely demonic, that would take a normal person to want to take guns and go into a school and kill young children. That's just not normal. Um, even such things as uh, the weather, Hurricanes, volcanoes, earthquakes, that's in the Bible there. Sometimes judgment is involved with these type of things too. Again, that it doesn't just because the wind came over the mountains and they made a big circle and yeah, maybe that's the physical effects. But again, there's a spiritual dimension there that we must be, be aware of. And so the other choice, the other viewpoint then we have is kind of on the other side of the spectrum there, kind of the we don't see it. We don't really think about it to spiritual paranoia or obsession. Spiritual paranoia or obsession. In which now attribute, people attribute virtually everything that happens to demonic activity and spiritual warfare. This is where much of the crazy and outlandish heresies and foolishness occur in the church. And there is some crazy stuff that goes on out there in the name of spiritual warfare. Uh, how many people have been to, uh, I know it happens here in the United States too, but it seems like the 
really outlandish stories come from outside the United States and many of the third world countries. So how many people have been outside the country in some of these, in the, some of these third world countries? And has anyone experienced anything like that? Any of the kind of crazy things? I know in my experience, I've been able to go to Africa quite a few times, and they would fall under a spiritual paranoia or obsession. That they, in one sense, it's good. They're aware of the spiritual dimension that's out there, but again, they, they attribute everything to Satan or the demons. Uh, it's very common to see or hear, uh, you know, Pastor, I can't get a job. There must be a spirit of unemployment upon me. Can you pray that spirit away? And they're serious. They're very serious. Um, and for many of us, we might say, well, do you show up to work on time? Are you lazy and don't want to work when you're at work? So there's kind of a, there's a little bit of a balance there as well, too. If, uh, if you want to get some entertainment, I guess, maybe, then, and just to see some of the craziness that's out there, go to get on the YouTube and Google like Africa and false teachers or false teachers. I mean, there is a lot of crazy stuff out there that's in the name of spiritual warfare. There's a, there is a uh, video of, I believe the church is in Nigeria, where quote-unquote angels are floating around in the church and everything. Um, and people believe it. People really believe that those are angels, and I'm pretty safe in saying that uh, they are not, that they are projected or however they did them, something. Um, but it is, it is very real. Many people believe that everything is attributed uh, to Satan and the demons. That, uh, as you're going to see, that uh, spiritual warfare is just not all these spectacular, exciting, and dramatic stuff, but as a soldier goes into battle, it's just really hard work. That there is no easy, magical prayer. It's just hard work of focusing in on the scriptures and who you are in Christ. So what is spiritual warfare? What exactly is it? We talk about it and other things. So I think it helps us to understand exactly when we talk about spiritual warfare, what are we talking about? So we're all kind of on the same page. And is, I think you have some blanks there. It is the struggle against the forces of evil, which is a constant feature of the life of faith. Scripture locates the origins of spiritual warfare in the rebellion of Satan and his angels against God and affirms the hope of God's final victory over such forces through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And that's what it is. There are forces of evil that are out there, and it is a constant battle or feature of life, of faith for the Christian. That if you tur turn in your Bibles to Acts uh, chapter 28, or I'm sorry, Acts chapter 26, verse 18, we get an idea of this. Acts 26, verse 18, says to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light 
and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So we see that we are turned from darkness into light, from Satan, the power of forces of evil, into the marvelous light in and through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we do have enemies. And therefore, we are in a battle. And so the obvious question becomes, is there, or where will we find spiritual warfare? Is there spiritual warfare in the Bible? Yes. Cover to cover, it's filled with spiritual warfare. But I do want to take some time to kind of just briefly remind us all of the spiritual battle that we're in, that it is very real, that it was in the past, it is in the present, in the future, but one day the Lord will put an end to it all, as we know. And so we start out first with the prelude to war. We have the angels created, right, Possibly before the earth, but for sure, I can say absolutely positively that it was before Genesis 3 occurs. Because in Genesis 3, we see the serpent and Satan going into the Garden of Eden. And then even later in Genesis, in that chapter 3, we see God sent the cherubim, angels, to go and to guard there, the Garden of Eden. But here's uh, one, one verse that possibly points to the creation of the angels before the earth. Again, I'm not going to be... 100% dogmatic about it, but something to think about I thought was interesting. It was in Job chapter 38, verses 4 through 7. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So here in Job 38, right, we see um, God talking about the foundations of the earth and where were you and who were there. And in verse 7, right, all the sons of God shouted for joy. And so the sons of God are clear references to angels. If, you were, if we were to go, we're not going to go there, but in Genesis 6, uh, there refers to the sons of God saw the daughters of man were beautiful. Right? And we see those as angels, fallen angels. In Job 1 and 2, the sons of God came to, before the throne of God to present themselves. So, again, possibly at, for, before the foundation of the earth, angels are there. But either way, clearly they were there before Genesis 3, before all that came in. And then Satan was also one of those created, and then he rebelled against God again sometime before Genesis 3. And if we turn to Genesis 3, we'll see how the war begins. The war against man. Genesis chapter 3. Any questions? Comments? So Genesis chapter 3. I'll read just the first seven verses there, just to remind us. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, 
But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and there was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So we see here Satan involving himself, and apparently his apparent victory of the bringing down of the fall of man there. We see how his desire is to destroy God's work and destroy man along in the process there. And later, later in Genesis, we, we see the consequences of that sin, but also we see in that the future announcement of a future Savior that is not a surprise to God. Amen? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And then Satan continues to carry on. Uh, we see all throughout the Old Testament, too, how Satan then is involved in the mankind and in the history of man. First Chronicles 21.1 says, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. That Satan continued to be involved in the workings of man. And it is an unseen spiritual realm. So that's why it's so tempted for us to forget about spiritual warfare, right? If it's not seen, not heard, not experienced in the flesh there, we forget about these things very easy, right? But it is an unseen spiritual realm. That there are many things going on that we have no clue about what is going on. But just because we don't see it or feel it or hear it, doesn't mean that those things are not going on. And again, the Bible reminds us of this unseen spiritual realm. That in uh, 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17 here, just uh, we had the king of Syria who was going against Israel. And every time he went somewhere, Israel was always there to thwart his plans. And so he's like, what's going on? Who's the traitor in the midst? But they said, no, it's the prophet Elisha who got word from God and would tell the Israelites where to go. So he sent his army out then to seize, to seize Elisha. And so we come here, Elisha, with his servant. And then verse 17 says, Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire, all around Elisha. So they're out there. We, there's angels, there's fallen angels, that there is a very big unknown battles that are raging and things that are going on that we don't know about. And who's to say, even now, there might be, we might be surrounded by angels, but we don't see, we don't know. Also Daniel 2, chapter 10 Verses 12 through 14. I think these are probably all familiar passages to you, but um, again, I think it's important to remind ourselves that what is out there. That he was praying, remember he was praying and mourning for three weeks, and he 
didn't hear a word. His prayer seemed to be unanswered. And then verse 12, Then he said to me, the angel there, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. So here, here we see, there's a battle. The prince of the kingdom of per- Persia, which implies there's some demonic force or power there. And then they send the Michael, archangel there, to come and deliver the message to Daniel. Again, Daniel was totally unaware. He just knew that for three weeks, I didn't hear. God didn't seem to hear me. I didn't get an answer to my prayers. So it might be an encouragement to you there, maybe if there's no unanswered prayer on your end, that there might be things going on in that unseen spiritual realm that you're not aware of. So don't give up. Persevere. Continue. We see that here. Michael overcame and Daniel got his message there. And that the warfare continues. The war continues into the New Testament there. Christ comes along and uh, we see all the casting out of demons, right? All the demonic possession and, and uh, preaching and uh, casting out of demons there. We won't read those, but Matthew 8, Matthew 9, Mark 1, Mark 9, the stories of where Jesus was casting out demons. And then even Satan himself gets personally involved here, we see in the New Testament during the time of Christ, that uh, Luke 22.3, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. So Satan is very much aware of what is going on in God's work and God's plan. Um, I think that we all can probably be safe. I think I'm safe in saying this, that Satan is probably not going to be targeting you, in you personally, in your lifetime. If you look at, uh, I mean, Nothing bad about you, but they're probably really not that important in the whole scheme of God's plan there. You see where Satan's involvement is with Judas, tempting Christ. Not to say, though, that he's not aware of maybe what we're doing through his demons and other things, but not necessarily. I don't think we have to worry about Satan and personally attacking us. I can't say, but it seems like he picks the, the places where he would be most effective, which... If you, were, if you were doing something like that, you would, you would be wise because he's not omniscient or he's not omnipresent like God. He can only be at one place at one time. Uh, and then we see him active in the early church there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations... A thorn was given me in the flesh. Of course, this is talking about Paul. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. And so we are still in that time of warfare. That war is still going on, and we are still very much involved in that. But one day the war is going to end. We see the beginning of the end for Satan was the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.15 
He, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Praise the Lord. Amen. And the final victory has come. That there is a final victory that once for all, Satan will be put away once and for all, forever, no more to roam upon this earth to bring trouble and sorrows and hardships. In Revelation 20, verse 7 through 10, if uh, you want to turn in your Bibles, someone can read that for me, please. Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. Go ahead. One day, all that would be, he will be gone, banished forever. Final victory will finally be us. We'll no more have to worry about him as an enemy. He will be gone. We'll live in undisturbed peace with our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, forever. Amen? So, though we are at war today, so then, if whether you're a nation or an army, and you know that you're at war or you're going to war, what's one of the first number one things that you want to do? Think about it. Pray. Pray. Great answer. I had thought about it. But that was what I was looking for, but you're right. That's number one. What's that? Thank you. Know your enemy. So before nations or armies go out to battle, the first thing they do is they do intelligence and reconnaissance. And they find out about their enemy, right? They want to find out about the strengths and the weaknesses. And then once they find all that out, then they make their battle plan to see how that they're going to defeat the enemy. Well, it's the same way with us. We should want to know about our enemy, his strengths and weaknesses, so that we also know then how we can be successful in defeating the enemy. So first, how many enemies do we have? One, yes. Is there more than one? How about, I think you've heard this before, we have, our enemies are the flesh, the world, and the devil. In which case, we are going to just focus on the devil or Satan. So the flesh, the world, and the devil. So in the Bible, Satan is called the devil 35 times and Satan 52 times. He is known by a host of different names. He's known as Satan, the devil, Beelzebul, the adversary, the dragon, the enemy, the serpent, the tester, and the wicked one. And there's other names as well, too. That was just a few. That Satan, he is created. He was an angel who rebelled against God. And I... And, uh, there's kind of two sections of scriptures there that kind of give us an idea of 
who Satan is and kind of his character and um, thinking in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. If you want to turn to Ezekiel 28. I think I had in your notes there uh, 11 through 19, but I'm just going to read 11 through 16. So this does, in this section, it does talk about the king of Tyre, but there are clearly some things that do not apply to the king of Tyre. For instance, he was never in Eden, the garden of God, and he was not, in verse 14, an anointed guardian cherub. But here, 11 through uh, 16, chapter 28 of Ezekiel. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Verse 13. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. Verse 16. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub from the midst of the stones of fire. We see, by all appearances, it seems that Satan was very powerful, very uh, anointed, important angel in God's heaven until he rose up and rebelled against God. And we see in uh, Isaiah chapter 14, uh, do you have that in your... No, it's okay, so we don't have to turn there. So in Isaiah chapter 14 there kind of gives us now an idea of the pride, the characteristics, the attitude of Satan. In Isaiah 14, starting at verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. So we see here Satan's pride and rebellion against God, that he wanted to be the one in charge. And as a result, we see that God then... um, Kicked him out of heaven there. But where is Satan now? So if he's no longer in, hanging out in heaven all the time, now where is he? Roaming to and fro, right. You read the verse there. <laughs> so Job 1, 7 and Job 2, 2. The verses are exactly the same. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. So we see that even though he was kicked out of heaven, that he still has access to heaven. So, but his home is roaming to and fro on the earth. 
causing trouble and sorrows. Um, but one day that will all change, that he will be permanently banished from heaven, that he will be upon this earth. We don't have time, but if you want to write down Revelation 12, 7 through 10, where the final kind of rebellion comes, and I believe it's Michael and all the angels finally officially kick Satan out of heaven, and then which we run into, then we run into the tribulation and all that goes on with the tribulation. And so what is Satan's main goal? Satan's main goal is that he opposes the person and purposes of God and wants to destroy our faith and witness for Christ. Satan is especially associated with deceit, temptation, and testing through which he attempts to defect, deflect believers from obeying God. And that he uses a variety of means in which to do such things. That he uses the current world system to work against believers to bring temptation to bear on our flesh. Right, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, there were... Uh, we are dead, walking in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, right? Which is Satan. Or 1 John 2, 15 and 16 talks about having the love for the world, the desires of the flesh, of the eyes, and the pride of life. All that that he uses, these things that in and of themselves aren't necessarily bad, but, you know, when we, we're sinful and we distort their, what they're supposed to be for and we get into trouble. Uh, and his, his tactics are his deception, his main means, characteristics, and methods that he uses in various different forms are deceptions. John 8, 44 says, Satan is the father of lies. Yes. And we see that he did that in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. We read that in Genesis 3, right? He deceived Eve. And what's scary is he used Scripture. Right? And he kind of twisted it. And so there's a little bit of truth in there. That's the most dangerous. If someone comes to you and says, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist or a Mormon or a Catholic, we know our antennas should be up, right? That there's not clear doctrine. But when you have people professing Christians, let's say, and come with some funny doctrines with a little bit of truth in there, that's when it's kind of hard. We have to be very discerning about that. Uh, and he... Even Satan used that against when he, attempted, when he tempted Christ there. He corrupted God's word, right? He twisted it for his own designs to try and deceive. Obviously, he's not going to be able to deceive Christ, but still, it shows us again how he goes about it. He deceives us. Um, and he can also disguise himself in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen through 15. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So we have to be very careful. We have to know the scriptures. Uh, then Ephesians 6.11 talks about deception. Part of that is the schemes or wiles of the devil. That the word means to lie in wait or to intentionally deceive. When we talk about schemes or wiles, uh, means to lie in wait, to intentionally deceive. Now, Pastor John MacArthur says this word was often used to describe how a wild animal cunningly, cunningly stalked and then unexpectedly pounced on its prey. And we said earlier before, in 1 Peter 5, 8, that Satan is like a what? A roaring lion. And I found this interesting uh, about lions there. It says that lions are said to be good at two things while they are hunting. 
They are incredibly good at hiding and extremely patient. And so now, now I don't know about you, but that kind of made more sense about uh, when God says he's like a roaring lion. When you think about it, he is. He's very, very patient, waiting for just the right opportunity when our guard is down or when we're weak, and then he strikes. Uh, Satan also sets snares. Uh, I think we all know what a snare is. We've got the snare as a loop there with the noose that puts something attractive or appealing, you know, many times food for the birds or the small animals, and, that that, and then they walk into it unsuspecting of the danger. And so Satan can set the snares for us as well too, 2 Timothy 2.26. And that they might recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. That Satan has snares for the wise and snares for the simple. He has snares for hypocrites, and snares for the upright. He has snares for generous souls and snares for timorous souls. He has snares for the rich and snares for the poor, snares for the aged and snares for the youth. You see, Satan is wise. He has thousands of years to perfect his trade, and he knows that attractive food or that attractive item that can get us into his snare. And here's a quote from, uh, a quote from Thomas Brooks uh, in his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. The devil knows how to lie in ways that appeal to our sense of deserving, our sense of worth or lack of worth, and our sense of rights and wrongs. You name it, Satan can lie about it. You will be truly happy only if you... Or God doesn't want you lonely, so... Or it will be only one, just one time. Or no one else will know. Those are all his snares, his deceptions. And that Satan also has a greater design of deceptions, not just for individuals, but he goes for the masses as well, too. And it is called false religions. Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So name a, Christ, name a religion other than Christianity, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Scientology, Roman Catholics, Hindus, Buddhists, Islam. Think about it. They all have deceived millions upon millions, might even probably say billions, through his deceits. He also blinds unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so I hope now that you have a better understanding that we do face a very real and formidable foe. But we have an even greater master our Lord Jesus Christ, who has destroyed the works of the enemy. And as long as we're living on this earth, like it or not, spiritual warfare will be a reality, even a daily reality. From Genesis until the return of Christ, Christians, we are in a war. Never forget, we are in a war. And as we still live in this world, Satan 
will be a thorn in our side and a disruptor and a foe and an enemy to living the Christian life. But God has left us properly equipped to not only confront our enemy, but to stand firm, advance, and be victorious in this earthly life of ours. And Lord willing, next week we'll be getting, getting to see what exactly God has given us to be able to stand against the devil. But God's armor does us no good if you don't put it on. Or if you put it on and you don't use it. Please, I hope you remember that you are in a battle, but a battle that has already been won. But, let, but yet, you can still be wounded. You can still be a casualty in this war and become ineffective for our Lord Jesus Christ. But remember, in John 16, 33, he said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Take heart, my brothers and sisters. There is victory here and now, and an eternal victory in and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, Father, we thank you that you have given us your word to remind us that we are in a war, that we are in a battle. We also thank you that you've been gracious to give us all that we needed to overcome, that in and through Christ, and in and through your armor, and in and through your word, that we can be more than victors. We can be overcomers, and we can live abundant lives, bearing much fruit for you, declaring and preaching the glory of Christ throughout the world. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I believe someone is here for announcements.